Welcome to Baltic World. I'm Charlene. I'm Crispin. And this is our week in review. Baltic World is where we talk about important issues facing Northern, Central and Eastern Europe. But before we begin, how are you, Crispin? I'm good. Today. Yeah? Happy birthday! Well, we're, we're actually, yeah, fooling on your birthday. <laughs> that's right. It's uh, it's uh, working on my birthday. No, but it has been excellent. We went out for lunch mm. and we found... Which I found... She did. They advertised a... Oh, okay, so we were going to an Estonian restaurant, mm. uh, which we managed to find. Really nice place, really nice area. They advertised like a traditional rye bread that they were making, but it wasn't ready. Mm, mm, uh, mm. But they had a sort of wonderful traditional Estonian uh, pancakes that we were absolutely delicious. And there was like a rhubarb wine side, which is made in Estonia, which was fantastic, mm. particularly since this was the hottest day in a sort of post-winter area, like obviously we're moving into summer down here. Mm-mm. It was a very, you know, sunny, warm day. And it's that like 35 was, degrees. Yeah, Celsius. very quite warm. Yeah, particularly for October. It was a very warm day. Mm. And we took some great footage for our... Yeah, some cool B-roll. We're trying to experiment with the camera and like on-the-go mic, like vlogging. Yeah. <laughs> but Charlene decided to like miss an important cable so we couldn't <laughs> do all of our experimentation. Yeah, so this morning, you know, as part of my sort of birthday gift to myself, I went and bought a uh, a, quite an expensive kind of uh, camera lavalier kit that could connect up our camera to sort of uh, carry on mics on the go. Mm. And uh, we took it home to unpack and play with it and learn all the instructions and everything. And then we packed it all away. Well, we needed batteries, right? We couldn't actually play with it without batteries. So, okay, Mm. we'll go get batteries and then afterwards we'll like experiment when we're we're at the restaurant. Mm. But um, my mind, I forgot to bring the cord. (laughs) So we got the batteries and he's like, where's the cord? But um, it's not in the box. (laughs) (laughs) But we were talking earlier of just how like different cultures have different types of like carbs and like pancakes is, I don't know, like for Chinese food, it's like rice is our main source of carbs. Like is pancakes really popular? Uh, like, it's popular in, I think, the Baltic region, yeah. uh, France, Russia in particular. Uh, yeah, and obviously bread in sort of the more Anglo areas. Um, also what people put in yogurt is, I find quite interesting. So uh, mm. uh, also rather what would they put on their breakfast muesli. So, you mm. know, in the West, they just pour milk into it and maybe put some sugar on top. Uh, whereas in other parts of the world, they mix it in with yogurt and eat it that way. So, yeah, there are like kind of interesting variations across different countries in Europe um, as to the way they like to, to consume bits of carbs and grains and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just found it a weird thing because I just associate pancakes with sugar because, you know, that's how white people do it. It's <laughs> just add as much sugar as you can to a pancake. Yeah, so in Australia, it's getting pretty warm, right, in the Southern Hemisphere. But that really means that Northern Hemisphere is getting colder and it's probably going to get in midwinter soon. Yeah. Yeah, I heard some uh, forecasting that the weather was getting sub-zero overnight now. And oh. yeah, we do, like where I live, it never gets below zero ever any nah. time of the year. I mean, in the dead of winter, it will get close and it will have a proper winter chill. Like you will get cold, uh, mm. but no, you won't have snow or... Australians complain at like 10 degrees Celsius. Like, it's too cold. <laughs> Yeah, and then when we see people from Scotland or whatever dying at 26 degrees, we're just amazed. Like, that is that is 
mid-range at best. Mm. Uh, but no, um, the Baltics are getting quite cold and there is a, a potential for us to get up there. Maybe, maybe, big question mark, mm. um, around the end of the year because there is a NATO competition that, mm. that I'm participating in. I'll uh, leave a link in the description. Yeah, and what uh, does that involve, like... The competition so nato is running various scenario testing as part of a you know planning for various contingencies right uh specifically around strategic communication so issues of disinformation cyber uh, artificial intelligence social media mm. uh, the way in which narratives are formed when it comes to sort of hybrid operations that happen between belarus and lithuania and places like that mm. uh, and so They've put out a call for various scenarios. Mm. Um, I won't, you know, leave any spoilers here. Uh, but I, you know, I'm preparing various scenarios for that, and that that sort of follows some of my own background. When I was working before doing things in the Asia Pacific, mm. uh, I was doing scenario planning and testing uh, with various groups around. Because I, I, my background is not foreign policy at mm -hmm. all, and like I just want to know like how common it is to have these types of like competitions or like opportunities to think of scenarios and then have a solution or whatever. Like, is it quite common among countries? Like, it, do they all have to do it? No, they don't all have to do it. And in fact, it's kind of rare to have a competition at that level. Like often mm. you will have these kinds of competitions targeted specifically at young people. So people 18 to 24 kind of get their teeth into the, area of, of uh, crisis management, for example. Oh. So they'll have these competitions to help encourage people to get into the field and then bring people to camps and get them connected to mentors and... Mm. And, and workshop. Workshop, and, yeah, and then get exposed to people that are a lot more experienced. Whereas mm. this competition uh, done through sort of um, NATO Stracom is appears to be like a serious contingency planning that you mm. put in your competition for various... Uh, competition submissions for various scenarios. Mm -hmm. Those scenarios have to be stress tested under real battlefield conditions. Mm -hmm. And when I say battlefield, in this case, I don't necessarily just mean, you know, war fighting situations. I mean, you know, you're dealing with, uh, you know, massive cyber events or, uh, you know, a narrative that's undermining your social cohesion or things that are happening on social media that are anomalous or things mm -hmm. that are happening in the markets that are anomalous. Uh, and then how you then manage that when you're trying to manage various crisis situations in the international sphere, a good framework for analysis is mm. to divide things up into what you know is a fact. So, you know, at 9.45 a.m. event X occurred and then person Y said this, person mm. Z said that, like you, you scheme out exactly the facts as they are known and facts things that everyone agrees on they're verifiable falsifiable mm. and don't rely on anyone's opinion or intuition mm. you put that into one category then you go what are our assumptions what are the things that we think could motivate certain things mm -hmm. what are our heuristics around uh, our assumption of what have been happening in the area yeah. uh, things that might be happening behind closed doors uh, our perceptions of potential adversaries. Mm -hmm. What are the things that we think might be driving people? We we are guessing here, but they're based upon a series of assumptions that we don't know. And then there are the sort of known unknowns. What are the things that we have 
to find out that we don't know currently in order to make any headway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are things of, okay, how could we be wrong about all of this? And this is something that Graham Allison from Harvard, who is a great strategic thinker and, and Allison schematic worker in this model, would say is after we've done the entire exercise, how could all this be wrong? If someone was to come along and say, uh, no, you're, this is you've got everything upended because of X, because y, of X Y Z, you know, and so you really need to red team things out to yeah. make sure that you've got all your bases covered. So, like, dial it back. Your mm-hmm. facts is that based on like actual real life scenarios first, like or like patterns of behavior seen X country do? Yeah. Well, let's. Is that a fact? Okay. So here here's a a, a simple example. Uh, Terrorist bombing happens in place A, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then group B claims responsibility, okay? Yeah. Well, what are the facts just from what I've said? Well, you know there's been a bombing. Mm-hmm. You know that it's had a certain location mm-hmm. and a time and place. You probably have some data around, you know, the casualty numbers as they're presently known, uh, you know, all of that sort of thing. Who was, like, in the area that you're aware of? And then you would have this group that has claimed responsibility, mm-hmm. right? Well, there's a whole lot of assumptions you'd be making as well that you'd be assuming that this group that's claimed responsibility is responsible. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just riding away. Maybe they uh, have a reason to, to take responsibility for something that they didn't actually do. For somebody else. For or- somebody else or, or they're trying to claim glory or, mm-hmm. you know, and then this group that's claimed responsibility, well, what are their motivations? You know, they have their stated motivations, but you don't necessarily know that's why they chose that particular time and place. Mm. Like, for example, let's say someone blows up an airplane, right? Mm. Well, they might be doing that because they want to, you know, create mass terror and, and cause a terrible event. They might just be trying to kill one person. And then you've actually managed wow. to conceal that fact by, by dealing with a whole bunch of people, no one would really know that, oh, you've actually been targeting an individual because yeah. you've got 350 other victims that you've got to, you know, research and work through. And so Sherlock Holmes once said, you, you know, the best place to hide a needle isn't in a haystack, it's among other needles. So when you're making assumptions, mm. they might be well-founded. They might, they shouldn't, like the fact that something is an assumption shouldn't necessarily prevent you from taking action. But, but you do put it in a different category on the basis that, you know, new information, new data could yeah. supplant that and refine uh, what is uh, then, presently an unknown. Then for each thing, do you kind of proxy like a probability percentage of each assumption? In, in, a, in an ideal world, you absolutely would. Like things that you'd have high confidence. I mean, the way the intelligence agencies do it is they say, you know, high confidence, medium confidence, oh. some confidence. Um, they don't necessarily put in percentages because that's kind of hard to do. Yeah. But yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the degree of certainty with which information is presented, mm-hmm. and the, and a, a lot of data collection, a lot of what uh, intelligence agencies do, a lot of what scouts do, in, in you know military situations, mm-hmm. is to refine the resolution, reduce the number of variables that are incomplete, mm-hmm. and try and make decisions that are based on complete information. Like the thing about poker that makes it such an extraordinary game is it's a game of incomplete information. If you could see everybody's cards, the game becomes pretty easy, right? Yeah. Uh, so what you want to be able to do is see everybody else's cards mm-hmm. uh, in a crisis situation so that you can make the optimal decision. The, the less that is unknown, mm-hmm. 
the more optimal your decision-making potential then becomes. Yeah. Uh, and so when you're dealing with major crisis management situations, mm-hmm. one of the things you have to do is, is do those obvious steps that can increase the amount of information that you presently have, particularly when you're about to make decisions that are highly consequential mm-hmm. and you're like, what are the things about this decision that are the risks Mm-hmm. Uh, and how probable are those risks and can we mitigate those risks by reducing the amount of unknowns? And uh, that's one of the things that these scenarios should be amenable to doing. So the scenarios that you present when you deal with these sort of strategic management crisis situations is A, how plausible is it? Like, could this happen in the real world? To do that, you have to steal man your adversary, i.e. find the best possible strategy, best possible arguments that you're opponents could present mm-hmm. against your greatest vulnerabilities okay right. and so if you because you have to assume the best from your um, adversary because that'll help make you the most prepared mm. and if they make mistakes well that'll only help you but in in your training scenarios you really do have to go worst case worst case so uh, let's say your opponent is a genius okay and they were really trying to undermine your social stability, undermine your national security, social cohesion and the like. How would they go about this? And so you come up with a scenario that can credibly succeed mm. based upon where you are now, okay? Yeah. And then, all right, you've thrown into this situation where you have limited knowledge but you are in a crisis. What are the ways in which you can uncover what's really going on mm. and what are the ways that you can successfully navigate this crisis towards a de-escalation if that's what you want mm-hmm. um, or an escalation but a controlled one you mm. know so this is really you know a challenging thing but this is what st- good strategic thinkers do all of the time is that they uh, look at a range of possible futures and they come up with a, a means of operation that's resilient against those various possible outcomes and that's mm. what readiness and preparedness and good strategy is all about Mm-mm. It's really interesting. I wonder, I guess it depends on the scenario, right, of like what the outcome you want to get. Because yeah. it's a crisis. So you just, like, I'd assume they all kind of want the same thing. Am I wrong? Where like. Well, most scenarios, so there are some scenarios that you come up with where nobody is at fault, right? Something happens and people make assumptions about, mm-hmm. you know, people being doing things nefariously or mm-hmm. doing things because they have some kind of overarching objective. And it turns out that, no, this was just a, a couple of coincidences and a lot of decision-makers built so much on top of that that a narrative took hold, but none of it was true, right? Mm. Um, but a lot of scenario planning is about, you know, malicious actors trying to seize objectives. Like I certainly in the Indo-Pacific, the United States and Hawaii and Indo-PACOM, they spend a lot of time wargaming out Taiwan situations. You know, mm. China invades Taiwan. How does the US respond? Obviously, Taiwan's uh, objective is to maintain its, its democracy and its sovereignty. China's yeah. objective is to reincorporate Taiwan into the mainland. Yeah. America's objective is to deny China that uh, outcome. Mm. So there is, uh, everyone has very clear lines of victory condition Mm -hmm. Uh, and those scenarios are still highly complex you know even though the the motivations of each actor is clear yeah Um, yeah. but a lot of scenarios are not like let's say you uh, are doing a scenario in which you lose contact with a submarine in the south china sea okay uh and you they were supposed to check in they didn't 
you can't contact them at all. You don't know what's happened to them. They've just disappeared. Uh, you did notice a seismic event kind of nearby. It could be an explosion. They could have been attacked. Mm. They could have been, uh, you know, they could have suffered some kind of terrible malfunction and ex- and had some detonation. Yeah. There could have been some kind of seismic event nearby. Could have been a trader on board. Yeah, uh, exactly. Like. Could have been. Could be right hand for it October. There could be. Uh, <laughs> and there could be, you know, the seismic event itself might have knocked out some communications True. equipment and you just don't know. Or, or they could be stranded and they need help. You know, they're, they're, they're stuck and they can't. They can't surface, they can't communicate, you've got to locate them as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, all of these things could be at play. A lot of unknowns, okay? And then what you have in the scenario is things going on in the background, you know, the sort of political context, the strategic context that makes things of a crisis. So let's say, you know, you think that the submarine has just been disabled somehow. You're really worried that someone else is going to board it and mm. take it, right? Because mm. they want the secrets that the submarine has. Mm. Uh, so you make assumptions about the fact that the uh, you know, enemy fleet is in the operating in the area. Well, maybe they, it, you know, it could turn out that they also had a submarine that went missing because there was some sort of seismic event caused some issue, um, and they're looking for their lost people. Mm. But because they're scouring the area that you lost a submarine, you're assuming that they they stole your submarine. They stole your submarine, or they drop depth charges or something like that yeah. to knock it out i mean all of it and then things snowball pretty wow. quickly and then you throw in an accident uh and suddenly you've got cuban missile crisis so the the scenario planning is is some people's whole career and yeah. so it is really good that the uh nato and europe are mm-hmm. thinking about the various scenarios that could be of relevance to to Latvia. Mm. and uh yeah i'll be putting in a, a few submissions to, to assist, hopefully, in, in that outcome. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the actual competition itself involves, uh, I think they're planning for the end of the year to host their uh, event. Now, I don't know what the end of the year means. I presume it's before Christmas. Uh, and if, you know, successful, Charlene and I will hopefully be in, in <laughs> Latvia. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, we'll get to hang out in Riga. Um, I'll be participating in the... The training and the uh, debriefing and, and the scenario testing of of what is presented, mm. um, but all, hopefully we'll also have time to to see the Baltic. So for sure, mm. but yeah, as you describe all the different scenarios, I'm a little bit overwhelmed, Crispin. <laughs> like, there's a lot to think about, and I don't think I don't know. Is there a particular type of person who you'd recommend go into foreign policy and strategic planning and? Oh. Okay, so that's a really big question, actually, and it's something I, I think about a lot, um, more so than you probably realise. Is there enough young people in it? <laughs> uh, it's getting better right? because during the Cold War, there were hundreds of thousands of people thinking about this stuff because you had crisis at every level at every part mm. of the world in this bipolar global struggle. Was it a dinner democracy table Democracy versus... Of exactly. It was a, a very good way to put it. Dinner table conversation, you know... Everyone had views on nuclear weapons and so forth. Mm. And then when the Cold War ended, everyone went into development, climate change, human rights, all these other things, rule of law, all really important subjects, but grand strategic balance of power, war and peace type stuff really went off the boiler, right? Fell off the even, even as nuclear weapons continued to spread to other countries. And, and they got bigger <laughs> <laughs> and worse. <laughs> Right? <laughs> well, it's actually 
they got worse. I don't know. They, they actually got smaller. <laughs> okay. No, no. The, I mean the size well, of the yeah. Impact. No, no, no. That's what I mean. Uh, that there, there is a reason. I'll explain it. Actually, I, it's a really good. So, um, the nuclear weapons are a bit like mobile phones. Okay. Oh, wow. They, they, they got big. They got small. They got big again. Um, <laughs> because, but, but basically, they're in. They're still in that smaller phase. Uh, because when the Soviet Union, this is a good like history lesson when it comes to nuclear weapons, mm. when the Soviet Union started to fall a little bit behind the United States in rocket technology, yeah. okay, because after, actually even a step back, at the, the Second World War resulted in two major breakthroughs in technology. There were a number of others, but two major ones. Same One, ships, no. nuclear weapons, okay? Yeah. And two, rockets. Yeah. So the Germans invented the V1, V2, uh, hit London, and of course Hiroshima and Nagasaki were destroyed by nuclear bombs. Mm. After the war, both of those things were invested in parallel. You had the space race and you had nuclear technologies. Mm-hmm. The, the United States always maintained a significant advantage in missile technology. The, the Soviets were very good at nuclear weapons and they, they caught up, I think, quite well in terms of um, manufacturing design of nuclear bombs. Yeah. But the, the Americans just had really polished missiles. Right? Why? They were, well, they just, they had better, well, okay, so, well, <laughs> that's a good question. We're going, we'll go down this rabbit hole. Experts. Right? The, the reason is that after the war, the Americans swallowed up all the German scientists. Uh, uh-huh. Werner von Braun famously was a leader in the NASA space program. He was also a terrible Nazi that perpetrated t- awful crimes in mm. the Second World War uh, against the Jewish people. Mm. Um, but he was given complete reprieve because he was a genius scientist who helped advance America's missile technology. There was a whole operation where the Soviets got more territory in Eastern Europe, mm. but the Americans got all the intelligentsia. Okay, so they went and uncovered the Punamunda uh, test facility. They captured all the test pilots. Uh, Hannah Reich, who was a famous test pilot, ended up in the United States. Right. Um, a lot of uh, people that have been airbrushed out of history for their various offences in the Second World War were given very posh positions in the United States, uh, often in the high levels of the U.S. administration and NASA after the Second World War because of their extraordinary scientific talents. Okay, mm. And they were extraordinary. Mm. And that gave the United States a significant edge when it came to missile technology that the Soviets never fully overcame. The Soviets got around their own problems in, in various different ways, but they weren't, weren't of the same caliber as America. Mm. Now, one of the advantages of having better missiles is that they're more accurate. So the Americans could afford to have nuclear weapons of lower yield because as long as you are hitting your target accurately, you will destroy a city or, or whatever it is you're trying to blow up mm-hmm. quite effectively if you get the optimal air burst and the optimal you know, um, radius of, of your nuclear test, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the Soviets had to risk the fact that they might be shot down long before they ever hit their targets. In fact, uh, in the early 1960s, they were still using high-level long-range bombers as the Americans had already. So 
that the Soviets were like, we have to make our bomb so big mm -hmm. that even if we drop it 100 kilometers away from the target so our planes can get away safely, we will still destroy whatever it is we're attacking. Yeah, and yeah. that led to the infamous Tsar bomb that was mm -hmm. 50 megatons in size that melted rock on the earth, even though it was detonated in the upper atmosphere. Yeah. And its uh, shockwave was still felt on its third rotation around the earth. Oh what? <laughs> oh was, my gosh! It was it was one massive bomb. In fact, it was it, the design was a hundred megatons, but they couldn't get the plane away from in time, so they they reduced the yield. Um, yeah. So they could they could it's, make that happen. It's kind of like when you have like you know you can't have it's not like this right. You have all the fans equipment in the world, but if you can't use it, then you're ineffective. Whereas Americans had the experts behind them, so they could be more effective with their equipment that they had. Right. That's right. They had and so. Now, you know, all the major players have very reliable ICBMs. Mm. They don't need to have yields of 50 megatons. One megaton is more than sufficient to, to destroy any city they're likely yeah. to target. Uh, and that's still, uh, that, that one megaton explosion is still an explosion far beyond what your imagination can dream up. Like, Can you give me an example of what you mean? Like okay. How big impact it would be? Uh, okay, so let's say... If if a one megaton nuclear weapon was detonated in downtown Sydney, mm. uh, let's say above the center point tower, mm -hmm. uh, the optimal say let's say about one hundred and eighty meters in the air, uh, all of the CBD would be gone, like just vanished. You would, it would you would never have dreamt that a city was there at any stage before. Uh, Everything out to Parramatta would be completely leveled, and everyone would be dead. Mm. Parramatta is about a forty meter, forty kilometer drive, maybe mm. a bit under from the CBD. Mm -hmm. um, and then from that, you would have uh, probably for the next five to ten kilometers outwards, um, most houses and things reduced to their foundation. So you would know that there were houses previously there, but they would have been, like, all the walls and things would be blown in. Oh, um, wow. And then probably another 25 kilometres beyond that, all the windows and things would be blown out. Like, you would, if you were caught in that radius, you would have been knocked off your feet and, mm -hmm. you know, debris might have hit you and things like that. But you probably yeah. would survive. Uh, you would have received a, an unfortunate dose of radiation, probably at that distance, not enough to kill you, but um, but enough to make you sick. Yeah. And then you would have the radioactive fallout, which would, would, would over the next few days, would drift in whatever direction. You certainly wouldn't be able to drink any of the water. You wouldn't want to touch anything. Um, mm. And it would be uninhabitable for an extended period of time. So why is it not a conversation? I feel like that's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's really traumatic and devastating. Well, it's the likelihood of it happening. Uh, well, I mean, hard to hide. I guess. It's hard. Well, it's hard. It depends on the situation, right? True. And uh, it, but it's not negligible. You know, these things are. I mean, I, I'm a supporter of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, but one of the drawbacks of such a treaty is that people no longer get to see with their own eyes just how powerful these bombs are, right? So, because there's not much testing. Mm -hmm. Uh, nuclear advancements are much slower. So it's not like we're building bigger and better bombs in the way that we once were. Mm. Uh, there's uh, reliability questions about whether or not nuclear weapons would even work successfully because people aren't testing them properly, you know. Mm. Uh, maintaining them becomes increasingly difficult. A lot of these bombs weren't designed to be 
extended over this period of time. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless, uh, these nuclear weapons do exist and people still do make them. If they saw how massive a nuclear explosion was, particularly with modern hydrogen tritium-fueled devices, Mm. uh, then they would be much more humble about the the site. I mean, I remember that there was a terrible explosion. Um, uh, This is a good... This will put it in perspective. I don't know if you recall, uh, there was that explosion in Lebanon. You might not remember. The the ammonium uh, thing that was about 10 ton... it was, about, it was about 100 tons, I think, of, of worth of yield. Okay, mm-hmm. um, To put that in perspective, your average hydrogen device would be about 100,000 times as powerful as mm-hmm. that explosion. Um, so that killed 150 people and destroyed a significant chunk of the city. Um, now, when, you, when I say 100,000 times... The size. Yeah. I don't mean that it's going to be as hundred thousand times as big. That's what I was thinking. That, that, because it's a cubic um, uh, calculation, right? Because it's all spreading out in a 360-degree uh, direction. Mm-hmm. So it'll still be many, many, many hundreds of times more like significant when mm. you saw it than what you saw on the on the screen. Although the actual um, damage wouldn't be a hundred thousand times as much; it'd be more like a thousand times. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, that's scary. Why aren't I? And I, I guess, yeah. Now, now I can see the complete significance of not pre-planning, scenario planning for worst case, especially around nuclear weapons. And the thing is, like, I do remember that chart. You know how they compare like Hiroshima to like the available nuclear weapons now, and how big the mushroom cloud is. <laughs> Yeah, so Hiroshima was about 15 kilotons. You can do the maths in your head. 15 kilotons, so 15,000 tons of TNT all detonated Mm. at once, okay? Yeah. Uh, And a one megaton is obviously one million tons Mm. of TNT all detonated at once, and the average size now would be about one megaton, roughly. One megaton. Well, 300 kilotons to one megaton in that range. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. About to see... Good luck, world. No, right? <laughs> it's nah. fine. It's fine. Yeah, no, it, it, it is good. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's all about security, right? Like, you need to have these things in place to. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird. I'm a bit like annoyed by it, really. Like, I don't really agree. Like, I do agree with the ICANN movement of like abolishing nuclear weapons, but I know it's not practical, but I'm still like uh, <sighs> a hopeless. <laughs> well, okay, so <gasps> here's, the, here's the problem with ICANN, right? Is it. it if you ask someone the question, mm. and it's like anything with complexity, if you ask someone the question, would you prefer if nuclear weapons did not exist? Yes. You'll get a lot of people to say yes, okay? But the problem is that we can't go back to a world... So there's, there's two big problems. The first is you can't go back to a world in which no one knows how to make them because you can't uninvent that knowledge, right? Mm. Yeah, Like if you could go back in time and be like, okay, before the atom was ever split before you, we understood how fission works, mm-hmm. anything like that, and say, okay, would we, uh, ignoring the benefits of nuclear power and everything else, just say, like, would we want to have the ability to make a nuclear bomb? Mm. A lot of people would say, no, we wouldn't want that. That was a mistake, right? But then, okay, well, you can't undo the knowledge of how to make one. Okay? Right. So... Is it based on basic science? Is that why? 
Well, it's it's basic. Well, it's known science. Uh, yeah. it, they're not easy to make, but they're easy to understand. Mm. Okay. Uh, the and so yeah, that's the first problem. The second problem is the the how we get from here to there. Okay, right. here from being the nuclear weapons that we presently have to a world without nuclear weapons, and in order to um, uh, get from here to there a lot of more dangerous things happen. Now, don't have time to get into it for this video, but as you progress people through it, and you're like, okay, so you reduce your stockpile by this amount, but mm. then these things happen. Are you comfortable with these things, okay? And then people go, yes, I'm willing to take these risks, or mm. actually this one is too far, right? Mm. Uh, and like a good, a simple, one example, what happens if Israel gives up its nuclear weapons? Israel no longer exists. Pretty much. Like we just have to accept that. Yeah. So... Um, the, uh, the the are we willing to accept that? Are we willing to accept this country being wiped off the map? You know, mm -hmm. is there another way that we could provide an assurance without uh, nuclear weapons? Probably not. You know, but then also, okay, you move to you might want to be, get rid of nuclear weapons, but is North Korea going to give up? Its yeah, weapons? I thought so. What if like, um, North Korea didn't exist? Would it the harm be less? Yes, I mean this is the thing. You have to do, now. I'm not saying it's an unworthwhile aspiration. Like you should. Do so, but you should do so pragmatically and practically and where possible. It's not like managing nuclear risk is the art of the possible, the art of the incremental. And so it's not, you know, sexy like ICANN's like, we'll ban all nuclear weapons. I mean, that is that's not living in the real world. You have to you have to do things based on where you're at mm. and go, okay, will the dial be moved? Will we be in a better place than we are now if we do X, Y, and Z? Is X, Y, and Z possible? And that's where I focus my attention. Yeah. Like, if I can incrementally help uh, improve safety and security in the world by a small margin, uh, then over a Pareto distribution, over if you wash that across the entire world, then that is a significant windfall. And I think that's where most nuclear thinkers are at. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes it means doing things that seem slightly evil, like actually coming up with new technologies, new weapons, new things like that in specific situations. If the overall net benefit mm -hmm. is going to be one of increased peace and stability and, and democracy and freedom and liberty yeah. and human rights. Um, yeah. So it's not. This is not a perfect world. So when you asked me the question before, what sort of person should go into this field? Mm -hmm. People who are willing to look at the world as it is, who uh, uh, have their own internal self-direction understanding of who they are, but are willing to uh, be flexible, not in terms of their ethics and morals, but be flexible in terms of seeing things from different points of view mm -hmm. and understanding where different uh, actors are coming from and their narratives and their perceptions on things. So not being a moral relativist and saying that, look, everyone's equal. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I think Western culture is better than Saudi culture, for example. But, um, the, but understanding what their motivations and drives are and realising that humans are more or less similar in some respects all around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, then also being really good at cost-benefit analysis, uh, at, at game theory is a really useful skill, and most importantly, have an interest in history. I, I, I think this is the number one talent of a strategist. If you can understand 
uh, previous patterns where things of similar nature happened in the past, you can derive important lessons from it. If yeah. you understand an individual country's past, you'll yeah. understand how they see themselves and their interests in, in the world, and you'll be able to apply that in a real politic, you know, realist geopolitical um, framework as to how they perceive their interests and goals. And, and if you could do that, then you can anticipate their behaviour mm. in ways that are is deeply constructive. And it, 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 it's, it's not something that people do have a natural talent for it, but it's still something that you have to work and train for. And like... Uh, I feel like you need a lot of resilience as well, though. You need a lot of emotional resilience, but you also need... Uh, it's like I said earlier in the actual crisis management scenarios. You want to reduce the things that you don't yeah. know, Okay. And if you know a lot, if you if you actually go to the places that you're trying to understand, if you uh, can read the languages, if you can do the history and everything, if you can interact with people there, then you do reduce the amount of things that you don't know. Mm -hmm. If you've got people in other governments that you trust and can trust you, um, then you can share information in, in a responsible way um, that can help you know mitigate these crises. So I'll, I'll give you a, a big example. Uh, General Milley, in the United States, got into a hell of a lot of trouble. He did one thing terribly badly, but one thing that was also correct. The thing that he did correct was, uh, and, and the scenario- Who's General Milley first? General Milley is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States. Okay. And when the January 6th, uh, I'm not going to say riots happened, i say protests, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he received a call from his counterpart in the Chinese military who was afraid that Donald Trump, this is all in a book, right? Donald Trump was afraid, uh, sorry, that this Chinese general was afraid that Donald Trump would start a war with China to prevent himself from leaving office. This is how oh. insane it was, okay? Okay. So that the, the Chinese leadership was concerned that it would be some kind of military event that would happen in the Western Pacific because Trump was about to leave office and this would be a way for Donald Trump to cling to power as if there was some major war, Okay. It was insane. Mate, he just wanted to take Texas back. It was insane. <laughs> it was totally insane. But General Milley got on the phone to his counterpart and said, no, this is not what's going to happen. Democracy is messy. There is no imminent attack going to occur. Uh, the China is perfectly safe. There will be a peaceful transition of power and, and just, you know, cool your heels, right? And I think that is a very responsible... Like, he was criticised for that. Like, why are you talking to the Chinese military? Blah, blah, blah. Like, you need to be able to have these channels of dialogue in order mm. to make sure that things are not taken out of context. And, mm. and that's why the red line was installed between the Kremlin and, and Washington after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the next time there was a major crisis, the President uh, of the United States and the uh, Secretary of the uh, Communist Party in, in Moscow could speak directly and sort out whatever issue it was, right? Yeah, before a catastrophe before happens. Before a catastrophe happens, right? Um, so that was Milley's uh, correct uh, approach where he went treasonously bad was uh, actually trying to usurp the control of nuclear weapons from the president. There was a story about that, and he was also speaking to um, Nancy Pelosi. Yes, I have heard this story. Yeah, exactly, and that's totally outrageous. Oh, like his his responsibility is to the is to the commander in chief of the day, which was President Donald Trump. He shouldn't be going in through domestic politics. 
uh, behind people's back. And so he yeah. should be held accountable for that. But the actual keeping dialogue open with potential military adversaries is a really good idea within certain contexts, of course. You, mm. you need to do that in a transparent way. Millie needed to be accountable for doing that. Like he shouldn't have done it on his own. He should have made other people aware this was happening mm. uh, and, uh, and made sure that there was a record and everything so that people could understand what was said. But... Mm. Yeah, I mean, the actual idea that these things were happening is a good idea. Mm. You know, you want, you want this in, uh, miscalculation reduced. Mm-mm. And do you think, mm. all right, this is me being idealistic, mm-hmm. but to have these conversations, have these dialogues, do you think things can be resolved within the Baltic and Russia through dialogues and ongoing relationship building? Okay, so I'm not, I'm not a hater, right? Yeah. I know a lot of people despise Russia for the many things that it's done and is doing. Mm. And some things are outrageous. The downing of MH17, the use of nerve agents in foreign countries to assassinate people, the incarceration of Alexei Navalny, the the propping up of Lukashenko. There are just so many things that the Putin regime is doing that is unacceptable. Okay, Mm -mm. But if I think about the Russian people their story, their history, their narrative, their sense of self, it's hard for me to hate them. You know, like they've gone through enormous struggles of their own kind. It's mm. always been difficult to be Russian. Mm. They lost more than the rest of the world combined by a large margin during the Second World War. Yeah. And they won the pivotal battles. And then you've got great authors like Dostoevsky and, uh, and composers like Tchaikovsky and, and Rachmaninoff and, uh, you know, authors, you know, poets like Pushkin and, and various architects. Like it, it's it's a tremendous history, huge human contribution. Yeah. So I would like to think that things could improve between Russia and the rest of the West because Russia is ultimately of the West. You know, yes, they have a huge geography in Asia, yeah. but they're a Western culture and Western identity and Western history. Mm-hmm. When so, you say that, what do you mean? Well, their like royal families had all intermarried with the rest of Europe. Yeah. Uh, they speak a European language. They have European architecture. They have a, a European-esque religion mm. in, in Orthodox Christianity. So but they're a Western nation, right, like ultimately. But mm. they have a very different self-conception and a very different uh, narrative. Mm. And so I do believe that there is a path, however narrow, towards an improved relationship between the Baltic and Russia and, and Russia and the West. Right? Yeah. What's more, it's in Russia's interest because at the moment they are so coddled up to China yeah. that one day they will be China's slave. Like at the moment China... Like North Korea? <laughs> worse than that. I mean, it's like imagine China achieves all of its strategic objectives. So it takes Taiwan... Takes Taiwan, becomes the world dominant power, pushes America to the North Atlantic, mm. uh, and every is, it, ha, controls Asia effectively, yeah. and is the world's dominant power by far. Okay, mm. well, in that relationship, Russia is at China's absolute mercy. Uh, there are fewer than six million people who are in the entire Russian Far East. Significant urban centers in the Far East, including Vladivostok, yeah. uh, were former Chinese territories. Right. China will just tell Russia what's what and Mm. Russia will either comply or suffer. Those will be the two options. And they won't have any other friends in the world. It would be much better for Russia to be able to pivot to the West, 
help be part of the victorious West. And I think deep down in the Russian soul, that's what they would really prefer, like Western civilization, of which they were a successful victorious part, to defeat China rather than to be a Chinese puppet, right? Hmm. But they don't really have that option at the moment because after taking bites out of Ukraine, after violating international law, after being a persistent threat to the Baltic countries, uh, the rest of the world cannot and should not deal with them. It's a lack of trust, to be honest. And, and, and understandable. I mean, mm. if let's say you've got a large Russian minority in Latvia and Estonia, uh, which they do, they have the, by far and away the highest proportion of Russian speakers outside of the Russian Federation other than Ukraine. Mm. Russia says we are there to uh, have suzerainty over all Russian speakers wherever they are to protect their interests, and that's why we're invading Ukraine. Mm. Well, how are you going to take that in Latvia and Estonia? Right, that your your national sovereignty, your borders are not secure, that the Russia at any time could decide that it's going to incorporate the Russian speakers into its territory and therefore half of your own country goes, right? Mm. Uh, the, this is, you know, and then just these assassinations that are taking place, both domestically in Russia of journalists, of dissidents, and then, uh, and then the use of nerve agents abroad in yeah. countries like the UK. Mm. It's... What the Russian regime is doing is disastrous. What okay. is their strategic objective <laughs> if they're doing all these different things? There's, well, it's in a really complicated feature. In some ways, Russia is a strange coalition of four different really powerful groups. One is the former KGB, current FSB, which Putin is sort of a, a figurehead. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the oligarchs, of which you've got uh, the Gazprom types, uh, Medvedev, those sorts of people. Yeah, yeah. Then you've got the church, because the church has been really reconstituted since the end of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union made everyone believe in Marxism and Leninism and, and, and the communist ideology. Well, when that disappeared, what replaced Russianness was the Orthodox faith as the safeguarders of, of Orthodox identity, of Russian identity. And so the church is extremely powerful socially. Okay, And then the mafia. Uh, there is a lot of crime in Russia, a lot of crime in the EU emanates from Russia, uh, and they have a weird kind of relationship with the Russian government where they sort of avoid one another as mm. long as they work together in certain joint national security kind of interests. Mm. Uh, so a lot of the disruption that happens in the Baltic countries, for example, or Eastern Europe or Western Europe for that matter, is Russian uh, criminal organisations. So th- this is... This is weird kind of a, uh, you know, it not not like it has the appearance of one strong leader like dominating the whole place. But in fact, the picture is a, one of patronage and corruption and yeah. patchwork of centres of power. Uh, it, it, and that's why you see the narrow opportunity. <laughs> I, I think it's very narrow. But the reason I think it's there is because deep down, that's what the Russians want. Like I know this. Like I know that... When the Russians look at the future 100 years from now, 200 years from now, they're not thinking we're going to be servants of China. Like that's just not the way they see it. They're, going to, they're seeing that, okay, Russia is going to be great again and uh, we will be part of the respected nations for which they want respect from and that's not china that's the the europeans that's the united states Mm. uh and therefore they need to be able to um contribute to 
that kind of world. You know, mm. if they've written out a picture completely, uh, then they're not going to be able to do that. So I think that ultimately they would prefer the West one if they were on the side of the West. But yeah. there's not getting from where we are now to a place where people can work with Russia in the West. Uh, even if against China is is a long road. There's a there's a strong pr- structure of interests where the rest of the world has a strong interest to work with Russia. Yeah. But the what the Russian government is doing is not conducive to that outcome. The other problem is the domestic narrative in the United States. When Trump was elected, Washington just went hysterical about Russia. Russian yeah. interference, Russian information, Russia control of elections, the Mueller investigation, the FBI. It fell out of nowhere, I feel. And it, and it was, it fell completely flat. The, the, there was nothing in it. But so many parts of the United States could not believe that Trump got elected legitimately. They just couldn't process mm. how this could have happened. Mm. And they were willing to believe any insanity, no matter how delusive. Yeah, did that uh, damage relationship with Russia? Of course it did. It made any kind of relationship with Russia impossible. Um, now, that's not to say that it was the only thing that happened. I mean, during that time was when the whole Novashok uh, yeah. nerve agent thing happened and Trump rightly expelled a bunch of diplomats from the United States. Uh, so Russia did things to contribute to that perception. But it, it, but it really helped Putin, this kind of... When you've got the United States absolutely wall-to-wall obsessed with the power of the Russian Federation to control American narratives, well, that makes your leader look very powerful. If you're a Russian, you're like, Putin can do all that to the Americans. Um, so it gave Putin legitimacy that he didn't deserve mm-hmm. and uh, and really made uh, uh, Washington policy incompetent for several mm-hmm. years. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't think about it that way. <laughs> and when mistakes happen, you add clout to your enemy, not enemy, but you get what I mean? Like, uh, to... He turned Putin into a giant. Yeah, pretty yeah. much, yeah. And, and this is a country with one-third the GDP of Germany. You know, it's, it's not... It's not It's not a peer competitor of the United States, uh, but it is in the, in the dreams of them under the bed, you know. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Oh, interesting. We went to review videos, but we kind of went around in circles, which is fine. <laughs> I think it's all relevant. And for those interested in foreign policy and strategic, strategic, what is that called? Planning? Is that what it's called? Ah, strategic planning, strategic analysis. Yeah. yeah. yeah strategic my, thinking. Yeah. It's kind of opened my eyes a bit and I have a public health background, so <laughs> definitely interesting <laughs> in that way. But aside from that, right, we've been delving in to learning Lithuanian and failing. Actually, our audience has been really nice Really to nice about it. Really good about it. Like yeah. blaming the robot, which I took me by surprise. <laughs> yeah. So, well, that, I mean, that's the lesson we have to take away from it is that we need proper Lithuanian speakers. People have been sending me private messages saying, look, you, you just that robot doesn't know how to speak Lithuanian. Because um, what we did was we found a web page that had names, <laughs> phonetics, speech. And we just thought, that's perfect, right? We'll, yeah, we'll try amazing. That. Um, but clearly, uh, that technology is not as reliable as we'd hoped, and because we don't know good from bad, uh, <laughs> we need. Well, well, we'll, we'll have we'll find some Lithuanian speakers who live locally, perhaps, and uh, a help us with the lessons. But also, uh, when it comes to finding apps and technology that's really reliable, uh, then we will um, get their advice. But if you actually f- know of any particularly good Lithuanian language apps that you think speak it 
appropriately and that would be good use for this video and for other audiences, uh, let us know in the description. Um, we will, in the comment section, because we will download it and, and yeah, use it. Yeah, and have some practice at it. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. And I definitely in our like second attempt, like I want to apply all the tips and tricks from everyone commenting on our video. Mm. Uh, Cause there were some really good ones, like just tones. Like I didn't think about it at, at first, I, but I have seen it before, but yeah. Cause in Chinese we also have tones mm. and it, it's, it's very different when you add a tone to it. You know, you don't just say things flat out, but yeah. And I, I, one of the comments was really heartwarming. It's like, as you went on, you actually got better. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we did actually, as we kind of worked out the rules of thumb, various things, but we might have worked out wrong rules. That's the thing, the robot apparently was so bad. Yeah. Uh, but no, the, the comments uh, with all the special characters explaining how they work mm, mm, uh, mm. is great. And then there was one comment about how like their, their five-year-old was reading Lithuania, doesn't understand Lithuania, but could read it well and speak it out loud, like at least enunciate the words. Yeah. Um, which means, yeah, there are obviously clear yeah. rules that we could follow and and learn to read off a page yeah. relatively well um so yeah it's uh, it's one of our commitments to to you guys that that mm. by this time next year next next birthday um we will be able to at least speak some lithuanian and then when we read uh we'll be able to read it clearly even if we don't know what we're eating um, yeah yeah and like, i think two tips of really stood out to me was you know how i pointed out oh we gotta shorten the last bit mm. but actually it's informal when you shorten things like yeah. like in australia like we just shortened everything yeah. <laughs> we don't talk proper english here uh and then yeah i mean that there's the tones and everything but also how the way we attempted it, people would still understand us. So mm. in Chinese, if you really get it wrong, it's really difficult to figure out what you're saying. Yeah. Because um, tones are very important. But mm. in Lithuanian, it sounds like if you have attempt at it, people can figure it out. Yes, apparently. I mean, we don't know yet. We'll see. Um, like if we're in they understood it. Well, they had the, the yeah. names. Yes, yes. So. That's, one, that, that's one helpful situation. <laughs> but I can imagine us being in Lithuania... Let's say we're in some rural area where people, you know, don't speak much English, yeah. and uh, we're speaking Lithuanian. Whether or not they would still understand us, even if we like spoke the words but not mm. in the right way, uh, whether they could understand us, it'd be a good test case uh, to see. Uh, we'll find out soon enough, hopefully. Um, mm -mm, for sure, and maybe we can try other languages too. <laughs> we're reading that that wine bottle for the Estonian. Uh, that looked challenging as well and Estonian is a very different language to to Lithuanian yeah, and Latvian because be. uh, it's you know much more Nordic Finnish related yeah. so uh, that's actually one of the things and I'll do a video on this at some point where describing the region is really hard so they're all quite different right the Baltic are different <laughs> Yeah, ways. and when you look at it from and when, and I, when I look at a map, I look at it from a strategic lens, as we've oh. been discussing. Yeah, and we've got like these Nordic countries mm -hmm. that have similarities and differences with the Baltic countries. And if you were in Asia or a different part of the world, you would you would group that whole region together in one group. You would mm -hmm. have Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, all in one group. Poland mm -hmm. and describe them as one sort of theater if you wish right? mm. and they do have a deep history together okay mm. but the nordic countries kind of prefer to be described as nordic and i don't really know why that is i'm sure there's a reason and i'll go in i'll, I'll do the research and find out perhaps it's some kind of viking linkage or something like that i'm not sure mm. and then the baltic countries 
they have a lot of similarities in that they have very shared interests, values. Mm-hmm. Um, they've gone through some shared experiences and the occupation and so forth. Yeah. But they do have other differences. Like, you know, Estonian is very different to Lithuanian, for mm. example. So uh, how do we group Estonia with Lithuania when Estonia and Finland have More linguistic similarities yeah. um, and yet Finland would be a Nordic country and Estonia would be a Baltic country? Like they, These are uh, a weird classification challenges. Like It would be like saying Australia is in one region but New Zealand is in another. You know, because it would be really hard to do. So conceptually, I'm trying to work this out, and uh, and perhaps there's a new word we need to come up with that describes that theatre that everyone is comfortable being grouped in. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment, um, do you know how old? Like when they say the Baltic countries, is that because it influences the Baltic Sea? (laughs) Really? Well, yes, uh, that like makes less, sense. That shares, but like... that, well, that's that's how you should do it, right? Like, yeah. uh, if you say, okay, the Baltic countries was all everything that's on the Baltic Sea, perhaps minus Russia, right? Um, but the way we describe Baltic countries is basically the three: Lithuania, uh, Latvia, yeah. Estonia, and then sometimes Poland. Uh, it's not. Yeah, it's not clear cut. It's not clear cut, and I, I think there are political reasons, historical reasons, social reasons, and I'll do a video exploring that at some point once yeah. I've you know, clarified the issues and, and mm. it'll be interesting to untangle. Propose a solution. Mm. Mm. Anyway, I think that's all the time we have for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, any questions, any feedback, please leave them down below. Uh, otherwise, stay safe and ciao for now. <laughs>